Celebrate Pride Month with TVO. Visit tvo.me slash pride for documentaries, kid shows, and educational resources. Discover inspiring stories of love, friendship, and resilience. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org slash daily. A hundred years ago in the medieval era, this year, pandemics are definitely not new. And while we're living in one, we know how much would like to never see another one. David Waldner Taze is a veterinarian epidemiologist and professor emeritus in the Department of Population Medicine at the University of Guelph. He is also author of On Pandemics, Deadly Diseases from Bubonic Plague to Coronavirus. And he joins us tonight from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for the long view on dealing with such threats. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. I know you're probably one of the most popular people on the planet right now. Um, but in- popular <laughs> is the right word. But, anyway. <laughs> but in your book, uh, you write from the very beginning, we have heard epidemiologists like you tell us that this pandemic was predictable. In what ways was it predictable? Um, we, we knew from what we've been studying in terms of emerging, what they call emerging diseases. So new viruses and bacteria coming from animals to people and increasing crowdedness on the planet. You know, we from the 60s till now, we went from three and a half billion people to more than seven billion. So we doubled it and chicken populations went up and pig populations went up um, and travel. If you look at all the graphs, they've all since the 1990s, they shot way up. So we could predict that something was going to happen, but it's a little bit like predicting earthquakes on the west coast or volcanic eruptions in the ring of fire around the pacific you know that something's going to come up you're not exactly sure where or when and you're not sure how bad it's going to be so being able to predict is not uh it's not an exact science it's kind of a general probabilities but how about um us being prepared because when the pandemic hit it feels like it kind of caught a lot of us off guard Yes. And part of that is because we've been reading, uh, we've been seeing movies like uh, Contagion and reading books about, um, you know, Station Eleven, the end of the world, those sorts of pandemics. And I think this one caught us off guard, partly because it kind of snuck under the radar. It had so many different ways of presenting itself. And people were distracted. I mean, you look at politics of the last uh, five years, 10 years, and there are a lot of other things going on with regard to the economy and so on. So I think in part we were, we were taking things for granted. Uh, if public health is successful, nothing happens, right? So you have, good, uh, you have good public health system, you've got vaccinations, you've got a good water supply, and then the politicians start taking it for granted and you start defunding it. You don't want to increase taxes. Um, and so people are not as prepared. Plus, Infectious diseases have been low on the radar. When I studied as an epidemiologist, uh, from, from the human side, people were looking at cancer and heart disease and those kinds of things, legitimately. Um, veterinarians, we were still looking at infectious diseases. So I, we, in a sense, had a bit of an advantage because infectious diseases were still more common in animals than they were in people. Well, the fact that diseases come from the animal world, zoonosis, <laughs> is no surprise to you. Can you explain to us how that happens? Um, well, there are, 
animals carry around their own, what we now call a microbiome, bacteria, viruses, fungi, um, they carry them in their guts, on, their, on, their, uh, on the surface. And so the more we have contact with uh, other animals, the more likely we are to pick those up. So we get foodborne diseases, we get salmonella and E. coli and things like that from eating. Um, those are, we can destroy those if you want by cooking. The thing about viruses is that um, they've increased uh, in, in recent years, plus they, they can, um, uh, their genetics can change. They're on less stable than most bacteria are. So they, they move from one species to another species, maybe from a bat, maybe from another animal into another animal, and then they, they pick up some genetic bits and they drop some others and they, they go through a genetic drift, as they call it, over time. And so they kind of circulate and we tend not to notice them as much, um, even though they're becoming more common. Historically, we've looked at, at, I mean, the virus that we're most familiar with is rabies, right? So we get bitten by rabies, a rabid animal, and you know what to do about that. Other things are more... Um, local if you want things like Lyme disease you know about ticks and deer and so if you see those you can you can manage that situation West Nile virus was a surprise it's another virus coming in uh, and we it, it was misdiagnosed at the beginning because people were looking for something else it was uh, you know the old story is if you hear hoof beats you think horse not zebra but in fact sometimes it is a zebra and in the modern world where trade and travel and agriculture are globalized uh, very have globalized very rapidly. Again, if you look at the graphs from the 90s and the early part of this century, um, those kinds of, you're more likely to encounter a zebra these days or as likely as you to encounter a horse, if you want to use that metaphor. And it's also 2020, so anything is possible. Um, but we often <laughs> exactly. But we often think that this happens with exotic animals, but this can actually happen with our pets. Um, yeah, and with our pets, it's more likely parasites. I mean, we're, that's why we have pooper-scooper laws, right? Because um, animals have parasites that live in the animal, and then they poop it out into the environment, and they're eggs, and they ripen, if you want, or they develop in the environment, and then it's picked up by kids. So we have uh, things from cats. Uh, toxoplasma is a common one. There are roundworms in dogs. Those are controllable because we can treat the parasites in the dogs and cats who have regular vet checks. And, and we found ways to control those. The more globalized ones are a problem because they, because of the, the, the trade and the travel, and because of the trade and travel were somewhat, I would say, reckless in the, in the 90s and the early part of this century. Reckless, I, that's a interesting, uh, what do you mean reckless? Well, it, it was maybe biologically blind is another way to do it. We, if you think back, the Canadian government, uh, a previous government we had, was going to China. We had these trade trips to China, the prime minister and various uh, uh, premiers and business leaders, and they were all trying to get trade with China and to increase trade with China. They were thinking about the economic benefits of this to us. You could lower prices of things, and you could make a, a global argument that you're improving the situation of people in China, but nobody's thinking about bacteria and viruses and the biological context in which this is occurring. A lot of things until now have been driven by, by economics. And from a biological point of view, I could say, well, it, you know, virologists, epidemiologists, veterinarians, we've known that that's 
reckless to do that, but it's kind of been dismissed. You know, economies of scale are good. They bring the price down. Everybody can afford food. That's great. And when you raise questions about it, they say, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, we haven't had a serious disease for ages. So, you know, what are you worried about? We had, we had SARS, you know, we dealt with that. Gone. We had bird flu. We went out, we got rid of the chickens. Everything is sort of more or less under control. So, you know, the, the biologists will take care of it. But then you start cutting back on public health, cutting back on these other things, because you're trying to really push the economic side. And then you get into these uh, sort of extreme situations, I'd call them from a biological point of view. For a lot of us, we're just now learning that um, over the past hundred years, we've actually had a number of pandemics. Uh, mm-hmm. We had the Spanish flu, of course, in 19. Well, I don't even like calling it this much. The 19, the Great Flu from 1918, um, and the World Health Organization declared pandemics in 1958 and 1969. Can you tell us what happened then? Um, it, interesting about just to mention the Spanish flu again, quote unquote. The reason it was called that was because. Spain had a more liberal uh, freedom of the press during World War I than uh, the UK and England and, and Germany and other countries did. So they reported on it, and they thought of it as the French flu, right? So anyway, that, that, that tells you Well, you actually talk in the, in the book, you do talk about how naming uh, pandemics can become a little tricky and political. Yeah, it, it can become very tricky and political. On the one hand, it's useful to say where it comes from. On the other hand, um, it becomes a political football then, and we've seen that here. And I, I, I don't want to go into that right now, but you asked about uh, 57 and 68. There was a, a H2N2. It was a mix of uh, uh, bird flu and swine in, in the 50s. Uh, some people think there might have been something in the 40s. And um, that kind of, it, it, there was a drift in that virus. So it changed little bits here and there, and it became part of a, an influenza background. It killed people, but they tended to be older people, unlike the 1918 flu, which killed a lot of younger people, soldiers coming home and so on. This one killed older people, and a lot of people say, well, older people are dying. Life expectancy wasn't that great in the 50s. It started improving at that point. And then in 68, there was a, a shift, if you want. There was a major change in that virus. And the original one, disappeared, went extinct. Nobody knows whether it disappeared completely, but it disappeared from our view. And so we had this mixture of pig and human and chicken virus, and it it increased uh, in numbers. And people say, well, probably a million people around the world died, which is in the ballpark of what we're seeing here. The reason, one of the reasons it was different, it was a lot more people were infected, but the death rate was lower. So um, you you can have a lower death rate if a lot more people are infected. And if I think back to the late 60s, I mean, there was Woodstock and there was, you know, everybody was, nothing was shut down on the basis of this this pandemic going around. Mm -hmm. And then it became, in the 50s and 60s, that became part of the annual influenza vaccination program because they could identify, they could say, these are coming, uh, we think from Southeast Asia, they were first reported by the news media from Hong Kong and Singapore and places like that. You have to remember, we didn't have the internet till the 1990s. So we know about the, uh, the pandemics or the near pandemics more quickly since early part of the 21st century. 
And that's changed the way we think about them as well. Um, I want to read something that you uh, re- wrote in the book. Uh, you write. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Don't worry. <laughs> um, you write, after that, waves of the disease go around the world, but fewer people get sick and die with each subsequent wave, either because humans have built up immunity or because the agent, defying creationists, evolves through the process of mutation and natural selection. In this case, only those with milder forms of the disease survive long enough to pass it on to others, and hence, the agent moves in with our species to a longer, gentler, more sustainable life. So how do some diseases go on to become more gentle infections? Um, in part, it's because we learn to live with them. I mean, things like influenza, we've found, you know, if people have influenza, they tend to stay home. We have vaccinations. Um, so we found ways of dealing with that. With uh, SARS-CoV-2, is that this is such a protein virus that's got so many different expressions that if you, there are a lot of people who carry it and um, they're shedding it and they don't show any clinical signs. And somebody next to them, they get the infection and they get really sick and they die or they start shedding before they get sick. And that's a real, um, it creates problems for trying to manage it. If you, with SARS or, or some of those other diseases, people get the disease they get sick, you know what this is, you can quarantine them, you can treat the disease, and you can essentially stamp it out. If you have, some people get sick, some people don't get sick, some people pass it on, some people don't, um, that's a real challenge for trying to figure out how to manage it. And, and in that sense, the current situation is different than some of the earlier ones, which we've kind of learned to manage. They become milder in the sense that the disease that survives is the disease um, which doesn't kill off the host. I mean, that's the the bottom line for these viruses and bacteria. If you kill off the animal that is carrying you around, then how do you get transmitted to a new animal? You mentioned Uh, um, SARS-CoV-2. What's the difference between SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19? SARS-CoV-2 is the virus. So it's, it's there's, uh, SARS and then a coronavirus, and that's the second one. So the first one was SARS-CoV. So you have SARS, the, the initial SARS uh, virus, coronavirus, so most coronaviruses. So CoV, the, the coronavirus, so the V is for the virus. Okay. Um, so that's the difference there. And then COVID-19 is the actual disease that people get. And I just wanted to clear that because we've been hearing so many many new terminology. Um, In in our lifetime, we've also seen Ebola, SARS, and MERS. Uh, Why are we seeing more of these zoonotic diseases? Um, Some people would argue it's we're looking for them more, but I think it's more than that. I think it's because, well, as I mentioned earlier, global population has gone up, doubled in the last, you know, uh, since the 1960s. uh, uh, Wild animal populations have been more constricted because we've expanded agriculture and industry. If you look at Ebola virus, uh, where it's, I mean, it's still ongoing in Democratic Republic of Congo. The the big outbreaks in in West Africa, in in French West Africa, were after the Civil War. So you had uh, civil wars in Liberia and uh, and Guinea-Bissau. And then you had this... um, People were displaced, communities were disrupted, and then you had this massive economic development. Forestry companies moving in, mining companies moving in, 
And so people were trying to get jobs in these areas. They were poor people. They were looking for food. They didn't have access to their normal food. And they were encroaching on wildlife areas. And so sometimes they would eat bats directly, but sometimes they would eat animals that bats had already made sick. And then they started getting Ebola. In um, the most recent outbreak in, in 20, uh, since 2018, there were like 3,400 uh, cases, uh, 2,300 people died. So 60% of those people have died. Um, and that was in an area around Virunga Gorilla National uh, Park is where they have the mountain gorillas. Uh, but there's also fighting going on and the government was looking at uh, having oil exploration in those wildlife parks. So we're encroaching on wildlife areas. We see this in the north with uh, encroaching on wildlife, er you know, wildlife uh, conservation areas. As we do that, we get into closer contact with them. And the initial contact is going to be with people who are working in that area. The question is whether the virus will um, um, change enough and adapt to, uh, in, to such a fashion that it can be transmitted from person to person. Then it becomes a pandemic. Well, SARS um, disappeared completely. How did that happen? And that's a good question. I, you know, after, after that happened and I started looking at what, you know, the literature on this, what happened, who's doing investigations on this, it disappeared. And the same thing happened with the, the H2N2, the, the, one, the influenza virus from 1957-58. It disappeared. Um, these viruses are unstable. And they, they pick up bits of genetic material from animals in which they are living, and they lose bits of their genetic material, so they adapt to new situations. And I suspect what happened with SARS, uh, the original SARS-CoV, it came out of bats, it went to some other species, it wasn't being passed on or it picked up some, it lost some um, bits of genetic material that would have allowed it to be passed on. And we contained it so rapidly because the clinical signs were what we call um, typical, pathognomonic is what a, an epidemiologist would use. So it's, if you see this, it's likely that. And, um, and so we were able to contain it. With this one, it's more problematic. So it disappeared in a sense because it wasn't, it wasn't a virus that adapted well to the modern world, to our technology. This one has adapted very well. It's, it's a little bit like the AIDS virus invading uh, your, your, the cells which fight disease, your in, immune cells. So you don't want to get rid of the immune cells because they're good, right? But if they've got the virus inside them, then you don't want that. How do, you, how do we deal with that? And from a, the virus's point of view, that's a great way to be transmitted, right? Because you, we can't get rid of it without killing ourselves or without reducing the load. And that's essentially what we've done with AIDS, right? We've, we've got drugs so that people can, um, if you want, live longer with it. So it reduces the ability of the virus to multiply in the body. And we've changed our behaviors in such a way that we're less likely to transmit it, all the, the, the you know, sex education and so on, which wasn't there before the, before the AIDS pandemic. So we've changed our behavior and we've also found drugs which suppress the ability of the virus to replicate in the body. If, you, if, you're, sorry, um, if you're saying that um, you don't think that SARS-CoV-2 is going to disappear completely, do you think right. that it might then take a more gentle form, uh, one that we can live with? That's the best case scenario. And I, I you know, I, it, 
it's very hard to predict. One of the things that happened in the 1960s and 70s after the 1968 um, uh, pandemic, uh, some scientists said, well, this is happening every 10 to 11 years. So uh, when we had at the beginning of what looked like an outbreak at Fort Dix in New Jersey, we had the, the swine flu and one guy died and some people got infected. They ramped up very quickly and said, this is a possibility of a pandemic. Let's get a vaccine. Let's get it out there. And that turned out to be a bad thing to do. The, the response was too rapid. And the disease disappeared probably on its own. The vaccine had some problems with it. And so people became more suspicious of vaccines. It had you know, all kinds of issues around that. So the, the predictability of this happening every 10 or 11 years, that's, these things are not predictable in that way. We can say these things on observation are happening more often. So we've got the possibility of pandemics, uh, the avian influenza, which we've contained, uh, SARS, H1N1, which was more mild, the, the so-called swine flu of 2009-2010, and we've incorporated that into our annual vaccination um, program. Um, in this one, a combination of behavioral change, and that's happening, spacing, uh, mask wearing. I mean, I've done a lot of work in Southeast Asia, and people in Japan and China and Hong Kong, Singapore, they think nothing of wearing masks. They do it all the time, right? This is not a big deal. And I think we may move in that direction. Um, we will get a vaccine which will dampen the, the, the caseload out there. So we'll figure out how to change behavior. We'll figure out how to uh, have global trade, but not in such an extreme form. I mean, H1N1, it was an American company in Mexico trying to keep the prices down and shipping their products to China, right? So we have this combination of, of travel and trade, and people weren't thinking about viruses. They were thinking about, you know, pork products and and uh, providing food, and that's all good stuff. But I think what will happen will be we'll become more regional, not in a protective sense. I mean, but we'll be more ready to produce our own masks, our own uh, ventilation equipment, our own food, but still have trade, but we'll be more careful, look at quality control, look at what's happening at the other end. Do we have food safety things in place? Do we have reduced wildlife trade? Mm -hmm. um, people say, well, we should get rid of wet markets. That's a good thing on the one hand. On the other hand, um, you know, wet markets, the reason they exist is because we all want fresh and fresh food. Fresher food is better than just fresh food. We see all the advertising. The same is true all over the world. If you don't have refrigeration, how do you get fresh? Well, you bring the animals to the market. If you don't have refrigeration and the farmer brings the animal to the market, they can't take it home again, right? So they they bring it to the market and they either sell it and it's spoiled. If they bring a live animal and they kill it on site, it's fresh. So how do you begin to address, you can't just get rid of the wet markets without at the same time addressing food preservation, um, refrigeration, power sources, so sustainable energy sources, poverty, who, who has access to refrigeration units, those kind of things. So you have this intertwining, and I think we're going to be more, at the best, we'll be more aware of those interactions and try to address them at the same time. So it's not just a technical solution, it's a social solution, economic solution, and they're all tied together. We only have a few minutes left, um, and this is, okay. always happens when you're talking about something that's really fascinating. Uh, but um, what is an interpandemic? Um, the, the 
when the the uh, the World Health Organization was looking at uh, avian influenza and how we control it, they were saying we have these periodic pandemics that might not be every 10 or 11 years, but it's going to be every once in a while we have this reassortment of genes in the viruses, and then we have a new pandemic. So they have a model which says that there's uh, the pandemic, various stages of a pandemic, and then there's an interpandemic, which means there's never a non-pandemic period. If I stand back and I look at it and I say, this is true not just for um, influenza, we can stand back and look at infectious diseases in general. So we can control some, but every once in a while we get, we get broadsided by a new virus. So a pandemic tends to happen when it's a novel virus. Most of them are going to be viruses now because they're, the bacteria we, we can more easily control. We figured out how to do that with cooking and various other things. Um, the viruses will be transmitted. And, you know, before it was, now it was, you know, through this kind of markets from bats. Maybe it'll be from some other place. We'll shift our trading patterns and suddenly we'll get something from Latin America or we'll get something from Europe or uh, we'll be looking one way and this will come from somewhere else. And what? that's going to happen simply because we, we get good at doing something and then we begin to take things for granted. And I think the way we deal with this is we develop what I've called peripheral vision. Oliver Sacks called it, he dealt with his own peripheral vision issues and he felt he was stumbling around. I think as a society, we need to have veterinarians and public health people and sociologists and anthropologists and economists all working together and saying, I can focus on this. I can look at animal diseases. You have to tell me what's happening economically and I can tell you what the consequences might be on my side. And you can tell me what the consequences might be of genetic changes in animals or in landscape changes. How do we design cities? How do we encroach on wildlife areas? We need to have those modes of communication. And so we're kind of, our, we're each other's peripheral vision. We don't have good institutions for doing that right now. So I think that's part of why, I hate to say this, that's part of why having a long pandemic like this one is good. It's giving us time to think about what are the things we might do when we pull out of this that will enable us to minimize the chances and extend the interpandemic period? Eventually, we take things for granted. We say, oh, things are going very well. Let's decrease the investment in this area. And then we'll, you know, we'll have something else. But if we, if we pay attention, we look out for each other. We're a little more local than we were before, but we still have global trade, so we're in communication with people in China and Russia and various other places. Uh, I, I think we can manage this in the long run. Thank you so much, David, for your time and for that long view. This book is spectacular. Um, I believe information is power, and there's a lot of information in here. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Very happy to talk to you. The Agenda in the Summer with Nam Kiwanuka is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.